Hello and welcome to the Hustle and Bustle podcast. My name's Nicole Bennett and I'm an urban and regional planner and I'm the host of this podcast. Each episode, I bring you conversations with city shapers and urban thinkers, leaders in the field of urban planning and city building. I'm located here on the beautiful Gold Coast in Australia. We're one of the host cities for the Brisbane Olympics 2032. The next 10 years is being described as the golden decade for our city and our region. The conversations on this podcast help us understand the opportunities and challenges ahead. So please take a minute from your busy hustle and bustle day and let's have a great conversation. And welcome to episode 11 of the Hustle and Bustle podcast. Today I am thrilled to be joined by a colleague of mine, Laura Gannon. Laura is Associate Director of Meridian Urban. Uh, Laura is a natural hazards planning specialist. Uh, She has a range of expertise in planning policy, strategy, statutory planning, uh, with core focuses on natural hazard uh, risk mitigation um, into land use planning and particular emphasis on bushfire risk and resilience. Uh, Laura has a range of career highlights that that I've seen um, in my time in the planning industry. Um, Most notably, I've seen her become Australian Young Planner of the Year in 2010 and 2011, uh, where it was Queensland Young Planner and Australian Young Planner of the Year. Um, Laura sits on a number of different boards. Um, she's a member of the Planning Institute of Australia. Um, she's a member of the Australian Institute of Emergency Services. I'm so pleased that you could join me today, Laura. Thanks, Nicole. Thank you for having me. That's all right. And today I'm really keen to have a chat to you about climate change. Um, and just to understand what planning's role is in climate change. We hear a lot about it. It's a really topical area at the moment, I think, with the the UN Habitat's um, upcoming conference. Um, And so I was hoping maybe we could just unpack that a bit and and just get your experiences, given that, you know, your area of planning has really been in in climate mitigation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, I suppose just a couple of things before I start. Um, I would just like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands upon which we're meeting today here in Brisbane. Um, we are in Brisbane today. We are in Brisbane today. <laughs> and um, um, also acknowledge the lands of the um, the traditional custodians of the lands that our listeners are coming from today as well. So, um, and also um, pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Um, I suppose it, it goes without saying that I'm, I'm a planner. I'm not a climate scientist. So, I think that's an important lens to, to bring to this conversation. But... Um, in terms of um, where our collective understanding is of climate change at the moment, um, people will be familiar with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC yeah. report that was um, released in August. That's their sixth assessment report. Um, and it had some really key observations um, in terms of evidence that it's unequivocal that that human influence has warmed the atmosphere and the ocean and the and the land um, and this is causing widespread um, changes and the scale with which um, that change is occurring is unprecedented according to that report and that's drawn out over many thousands of years so this is not generated from studies that have been undertaken just over the past 100 or 200 years. Um, So carbon dating and other processes have been used to to understand how our climate has been changing over a a very long period of time. So do you think it's sort of getting to a point now where 
scientists are agreeing. I know you said you're yeah. not a scientist, but you know, I, climate change has been around since I was at uni, you yeah. know, many years ago. And, and it, it seems like now people are really starting to care about it. Is that That's, fair? I think so. Yes. I think there is a heightened awareness. Um, the impacts that we're seeing, we've already seen impacts and there's a number of studies that are identifying the rate of change that we're seeing with our weather and our climate are surpassing um, previous records. So the human influence is um, is absolutely present and science is is attesting to that. We're no longer in a place of having a conversation about whether we believe or not that that time has come and gone. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, um, yeah, it's absolutely a space now where um, we need to mobilise in terms of mitigation and adaptation. Yeah. Um, what we're seeing are climate extremes, climate and weather extremes that are occurring, and we're seeing that in Australia. We're seeing that on a global scale. Um, and so that IPCC report is probably one of the key reports released this year, but there's so many different studies and reports that are available that I can understand how, and certainly from my end, um, it can be a little bit overwhelming to understand this space yeah. um, or the implications for land use planning. And I guess that's um, really where our work at, at Meridian Urban um, kind of seg segues in, into this space. Um, the tools that we use around understanding climate and introducing scenarios into our work, we do so on a daily basis. Um, and that's really about understanding the climate and weather implications across Queensland and Australia more broadly um, to inform planning policy as well as strategic planning and statutory planning um, and particularly in the realm of growth management and the consideration of, of natural hazards. So um, people will be aware of the Paris Agreement yeah. um, and that Australia, we're required along with every other nation to submit emissions reduction commitments. Um, and we've currently identified as a nation to limit carbon emissions to lower than 2005 levels by 2030. Okay. Um, so you'll no doubt um, have been keeping pace with the political and economic dialogue in relation to that. Um, but there's also then the partner conversation around achievement of net zero emissions by 2050, and I think we can probably come back to that particular aspect. Um, but more broadly in this space, and I guess as it relates to planning, um, we have the 2012 Productivity Commission report, and that really looked at barriers um, to effective climate change adaptation. Uh, there's also a range of national and international commitments and goals that we've made um, and frameworks in place that guide not only sustainable development but disaster risk reduction and having regard to climate change is a key part of all of those processes. So um, if we look at it at the Queensland scale, um, one of the really great tools that, that we have available in Queensland is the Long Paddock website, um, okay. which is um, a Queensland government website and that hosts quite detailed data um, for the regions across Queensland. Um, and so it has looked at a range of models um, 
and it's produced uh, a, a number of key scenarios, so a low, a moderate, and um, and a high scenario, and that can help us inform what the particularly localised picture of climate change might be yielding um, 2050, 2090, etc. So, so yeah, that's wow. that's really helpful. I might um, so that's long paddock. I might link that in the yeah. show notes so people can check that out. Yeah. Okay. Um. So that that kind of I guess that brings us up to where our understanding and appreciation for climate change is currently. But I guess a lot of these dates is like 2030, 2050. You know, why why is it so important that we plan for it now? You know, if climate change is a long process, and we're talking what 1.5 to two degrees of of change of you know um, atmospheric change. Um, like why why do we need to plan for those effects now? Yeah. I think there's probably a few key things. Obviously, planning dimensions, like our strategic planning processes are quite long-term. We, we adopt quite long-term visions, and that's really certainly a key part of it. I also think that sometimes we tend to think of climate change impacts as being quite insidious and, and long-term, but really what we're probably likely to see are sharp shocks along the way. Yeah. Um, and so that's a really key part of it. The IPCC report that we were just talking about um, identifies uh, that global warming will be um, will exceed uh, between 1.5 and 2 degrees during this century. Yeah. Um, unless we make um, quite strident um, approaches in terms of of mitigation and reducing our emissions. Yeah. Importantly, and, and I guess one other part of that is that um, we're on track to actually reach 1.5 um, degrees of global warming by 2030. Um, so you mentioned that this is a golden decade for Queensland yeah. and it's actually um, a really critical decade for um, planning for climate and really uh, reducing our emissions. Yeah. Another key part of it, though, is also um, for every... Point one of a degree over 1.5 degrees, uh, we're likely to see severe weather events in Australia and globally uh, increase significantly, both in terms of intensity and frequency. In terms of the planning profession, in 2020, the Planning Institute of Australia declared a climate emergency, um, and that was followed up by um, some work earlier this year around a national campaign for climate-conscious climate planning, um, and that's highlighted across every state and territory around what are the things that we need to be considering as part of our planning processes and systems to um, enhance the consideration of climate change. Uh, at the Queensland level, uh, there were a number of us that contributed to the state um, platform, and it's been really pleasing to see the uptake and the traction that that has gained over recent months. So if, if if listeners out there haven't had a chance to have a look at that, I strongly recommend that you do so. Uh, there's some really key things in there. I um, might put a link to that in the show notes as well. Yeah, absolutely. Make a bit of a resource dump so people yeah. can learn a bit more after the podcast. Yeah, there's certainly a lot to kind of take in in this space, um, but hopefully some of these things are kind of easy to read. Yeah, and it's good to know what from your perspective, are the key documents, and I think yeah. that's the important bit for me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what that particular 
platform, that advocacy platform that PIA has developed at the Queensland level does is it, it articulates that Queensland is Australia's most vulnerable state. Yeah. And that's for a range of reasons. We do field the most emergencies or disaster impacts compared to other states. Um, there was a Deloitte Access Economics report um, that was prepared a couple of years back and it forecasts the economic loss from disasters in Queensland would reach an estimated, I think, $18 billion a year by oh, 2050. Wow. wow. And currently, well, I think that was 2018, it was around $6.2 billion. So wow. we can see the, I guess that's looking at it from the purely economic perspective. Yeah. Um, and the other part of that is really thinking about the impact on people and communities. But often we hear the economics is one of the reasons not to change because, you know, if we, you know, that's, there's some resistance with mm. business around kind of, well, if we do make some changes to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, that's going to really affect them and, and how they do business as usual currently and, yeah. and, you know, we'll lose jobs and we'll lose productivity. But as you're saying, there's a there's an economic dimension that's quite significant if we do nothing. That's right. That's yeah. right, absolutely. So there's a lot of levers for us to be thinking about and pulling along this journey. Yeah. And I think we're also a state with tremendous opportunity to transition. So um, our economy, our energy sources... Uh, our planning for sustainable communities. Uh, but I think the thing is, is that transition doesn't happen overnight and it does have to be a supportive process. Um, and importantly, we need that to ensure the longevity and resilience of our regions. Um, but I guess that the thing from my end is that we have detailed climate models that enable us to forecast future oh sorry I slipped on my chair then <laughs> uh, future climate scenarios and their impact um, and we're becoming equipped to tackle mitigation and adaptation head-on yeah okay so we need to do something now okay so then how can communities become more resilient to the impacts of climate change you know and some of these impacts are like I mentioned sea level rise but also like you've mentioned more frequent kind of and severe bushfire events and other yep. weather events. So, so what can, can communities start doing now to be more resilient to those short, sharp shocks that you mentioned? Absolutely. Well, I think planning as part of our communities has a really strong role here. Um, there's some recent work out of the United States um, that has identified that planning processes and systems have typically in the past looked to identify a future state or a vision, um, for example, and plan towards the achievement of that. And what we're now finding is that we need to be thinking about a multitude of scenarios, a multitude of what-ifs, um, yeah. because of the lack of certainty we now have, and then curating our planning instruments and processes to actually respond to different scenarios. So making them quite flexible, but then also really cognizant, I suppose, of the nature of hazards and risks um, that we might face. And that's not just in a natural hazard sense. That's across every risk that planning has to encounter because it is a, a balancing um, a balancing process. So um, one of the exciting things, though, I think, is that um, there is a vast scale of work already happening. Um, so I think we'll focus on Queensland. Um but if we think about the coastal hazard adaptation strategies, um, uh, 
you know, the risk assessments that are required under the state planning policy. Um, we're moving into a space of seeing whole of catchment floodplain risk assessments um, like that that was completed for the Brisbane River. Yeah. Um, so there is tangible, really strong, really industry-leading work that, that Queensland is pioneering with. Um, I think kind of central to all of these processes, though, is um, the integration of community values and aspirations, which is a, yeah. a really important part. I, can't, I probably can't stress that enough. Yeah. Um, and it's really important in terms of enhancing community resilience. Um, communities aren't um, – communities have a tremendous level of their ability to adapt, uh, their ability to pitch in, and I think we need to start harnessing that more. Um but where planning can step in and assist with these processes um, is around looking at community partnerships and collaborative, multidisciplinary approaches to help navigate some of these issues because I think the, the underlying thing is that um, at certain points we're going to have to have some tough conversations with people. Yeah. Um, but if we can be as open and transparent in that as we can, I think that will go a long way. So um, could that mean like displacing people from their homes and that sort of thing because of these risks? Um, I think, well, climate migration is uh, is a topic that a lot of people are talking about um, and that might indeed be one of the things that we do need to think about, um, yeah. along with opportunities for mitigation and transition. And um, But if we look at our Pacific Island neighbours, um, we should have a mind to what also Australia might be able to do in terms of, of benefiting others. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there's a whole new world, I suppose, out mm. there that um, that we're going to need to, to start adapting to. Yeah. Um, I think the other important part here is um, the integration of traditional custodian values and knowledge and skills, and there's been a lot of talk about that, particularly since the Black Summer bushfires yeah, okay. um, and around cultural burning. So yeah. um, They were well ahead of us. <laughs> absolutely. They've been managing and stewarding the Australian landscape for tens of thousands of years, um, yeah. and particularly from a fire perspective, the Australian bush is meant to burn. Yeah. So uh, how we go about that, I suppose, is is um, is something that a lot of stakeholders need to be involved in, yeah. and we probably need to shift our thinking around what we feel has been occurring in the past and where we need to go to from here in cultural burning and traditional practices in that space are certainly really key to that. Yeah. Um, cultural burning, importantly, is not actually a hazard mitigation um, uh, tool. It's really about healthy country um, and reading the landscape and understanding the impact of seasons and what that is translating to in terms of vegetation to understand the right time to burn rather yeah. than burning to a calendar. Yeah, yeah. And it is as much about ensuring the protection of animals um, and providing them with food sources as it is for humans. So, yeah, wow. so it is a really broad reaching tool. Yeah. Um, 
so yeah, I certainly think there's there's a, an immense place for the consideration of um, indigenous uh, skill sets in in this space and understanding how do we how we evolve yeah, with the changing climate. It's fascinating because they've had such a history with the land, and this is such a forward looking topic, you know. And we've got so many kind of technological and digital tools at our disposal but yet it's the traditional custodians that know the land the best and and they're often the ones that kind of have some of the key sort of ingredients to unlocking some of these opportunities and challenges yeah that's absolutely right oh that's so good okay so um if we could go back maybe to the the climate change event this international climate change event that's going to be in the uk the end of next month so we've got all of these government heads of government coming together to discuss climate change action how are we going to kind of respond to that ipcc report that's sort of saying unless we do something drastic now we're going to keep global warming is going to go well beyond what we were envisaging or aiming for so could you sort of maybe unpack maybe what some of that action is that 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 conference may talk about and also why is there this target for net zero emissions and why is it so mm-hmm. important? Yeah, well, we mentioned um, the critical decade that we're now in and that, that real pursuit to limit um, emissions to 1.5 degrees. Achieving carbon neutrality or or net zero, as most people would refer to it as, um, it's a primary opportunity that we have to uh, to, to drastically reduce our carbon emissions and what it does is it requires us to balance uh, the amount of carbon released into the atmosphere from a variety of sources um, with the amount removed and stored by carbon sinks. So it's striking that balance. In terms of the action needed, it's it's quite varied and diverse and it takes in many things. And quite aside from the industrial and energy aspect, which... Um, occupies a lot of a, a lot of media that we take in and it's always discussed. Yeah. I think some of the other things, quite pragmatic things that we could think about are reversing the likes of deforestation, for example, like by planting trees as yeah. an opportunity. Um, and in cities in particular, this can also support uh, cooler, greener environments. So where we're thinking we might have urban heat island effects, for example, or the impacts of heat wave, that yeah. can be a really key opportunity for us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, carbon farming is another one. Okay. Um, and Australia in particular offers um, really key environments that support this because of the type of vegetation that we have and the practices, Okay. importantly, that we can implement. Yeah. And one of those practices, again, is, is um, cultural burning. So what is carbon farming? Carbon farming is um, the allocation of land use. So, um, particularly in southwest Queensland, we're, we're seeing quite a bit of uptake in this space, which um, is transitioning agricultural lands um, to uh, restoring regional ecosystems. So, okay. what we're seeing is that you can balance agriculture and um, ecosystem diversity. Yeah. So uh, that's a key a key opportunity in that space. Yeah, okay. Um, with cultural burning, uh, one of the there's been quite a number of studies in this actually that have found that the way that cultural burning is conducted on a broad scale actually reduces 
carbon emitted from bushfires. So, yeah, right. um, so healing country and putting good fire into the landscape is not only a great hazard mitigation opportunity, but will also reduce uh, carbon emissions wow. over time. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think from a planning, bringing it all back to the planning perspective again, we tend to think of some of these things as not being particularly in our wheelhouse, but yeah. um, I don't believe that that's the case. I think there's so many different things, um, including in people's day-to-day um, as practitioners that contribute to climate mit- mitigation and ad- adaptation. Um, and there's really pragmatic change already occurring um, and industry responses in this space that are paving the way. Um, for example, there's uh, climate-conscious development assessments um, that uh, I've seen occur at DA stage where there's sort of a, to- a stop take undertaken of, yeah, cool. of um, you know, what the climate responsiveness of the development is. So we're seeing these really great advancements in this space, which is wonderful. So we all, we're all part of it. We've all got part of the, the key to the solution. Yeah, and it felt like for me when I first came into the profession, it was all about sustainability, you know, and then that really died away. And I think what we're seeing now is sort of sustainability on steroids. We need to really start to think think about how this can affect our day to day. All right, well, I have one last question for you, and I wanted to focus on your your specialist and your love for bushfire. I think we've heard you heard you chat a couple of times about cultural burning, um, and I know you've you've focused really heavily on on bushfire hazard and risk. Um, so I just wanted to sort of get your feel for what some of the factors of climate resilience that relate specifically to bushfire in Queensland, and what resilience measures can we consider for a bushfire? Yeah, absolutely. I think in terms of considering resilience measures, um, it's in, it's we probably first importantly need to understand how our climate is changing the ball game in this space. Um, last year, for example, the Bureau of Meteorology or BOM um, released a, a longitudinal study of fire weather across Queensland's regions, uh, and I think that was from the 1950s onwards. And it shows a marked increase in pretty much every region of fire weather. That bomb study demonstrates that Queensland's climate is already changing in terms of fire weather. Um, and it will continue to change. So some of the, I guess, more detailed aspects of it is that our fire seasons are arriving earlier in some, in some locations in Queensland, almost a month earlier than they used to. Um, and they are lasting longer and, uh, what we're also seeing are hotter days, so more frequent hot days, yeah. um, but also hot nights, yeah. which is a key uh, issue for our fire services because that is the time that fire suppression is really beneficial, yeah. particularly when you've got big, big blazes. Yeah. Um, the reduced conditions or the more mild conditions at nighttime were really favourable to um, containing fires. Yeah. But now that we're seeing them... We're seeing those hotter temperatures. We're seeing increased fire activity even during the night time. So, um, and then of course, rainfall, drought conditions. Um, you know, the bomb, the bomb report does all look at, at those aspects as well. Um, so we have an increasing level of exposure in Queensland from what we probably previously thought was the case. Um, and, one of the things that, and, and this is a really, um, this really struck me when I read it, but 
uh, one of the 2015 Productivity Commission reports um, into uh, the national um, natural disaster funding arrangements made the quote about land use planning, and I'll quote it. Land use planning is one of the most potent policy levers to influence future disaster risk. Wow. So we know that we know the power of planning policy and strategic planning and integrating that into our into our um, statutory schemes, our statutory instruments. Yeah. Um, we, you know, in Queensland, we have the requirement under the state planning policy to undertake risk assessments, and that's a really valuable opportunity for us to understand place-based risk and yeah. how it varies not only across hazards but across locations as well. And that might even include context of those locations and some of the pressures that they might be facing. So yeah. it's all part of the story. Yeah. Um, and I think the other, the other thing that I'm always conscious of is that planning is part of a broader mitigation framework that yeah. includes building and includes land management. It's um, only one piece of the puzzle, but it's, it's an important piece of the puzzle. And it's a really strong piece of the puzzle, yeah. and I think we, we we might underplay that a bit. And I think moving yeah. forward, uh, we have a really key opportunity in a variety of different ways to respond to uh, emerging climate conditions. And that's it's exciting to know that planning can be a really key st- stakeholder in this space. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I just go back to that point that you said that this is a golden decade for our for our city and our region, um, but it's also a really critical decade for climate action and for mitigating these natural disasters that can occur and, and sort of taking some of the opportunities that we have ahead and, and seeing whether we can find some win-wins. You know, how can we both serve kind of this Olympic legacy as well as um, kind of address these climate issues that we're facing? So yeah. that's all we have time for. Thank you so much for Thanks your time for today. Me. That's all right. I really appreciate chatting with you and, and you're a very different guest to get on the podcast. So I hope the audience um, really enjoys sort of learning something so. around so. climate change because I certainly did and I've learned a lot. So I'll link um, what you've mentioned in the show notes so if people are keen to research a little bit more they can and I'll also um, tag you so that they can get in touch with yourself if, if they've got any particular questions and thank you for tuning into the Hustle and Bustle podcast this week you can follow the show on Instagram hustle underscore bustle underscore podcast for guest announcements and to let us know what you think of the episode send through any questions and, and comments there We also now have a home on LinkedIn. Uh, Just search Hustle and Bustle podcast and join the group. I update the group each time an episode is released. That's all from this episode. Thanks again for listening. Catch you next time. Bye for now.